Today on Chase Wildly. It is my honor and my pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with and to present to you one Dr. Erica Matluck, who is quite simply a healing force. She is a naturopathic doctor, a nurse practitioner with over a decade of experience in conventional medicine, and has more recently founded Seven Senses, where she creates retreat experiences and healing programs for groups and individuals based on her knowledge of conventional medicine and melded with her vast experience in other healing arts from massage to Reiki to breathwork to Kundalini and beyond. Her story and compassionate perspective are so necessary right now and inspiring. We talk about the process of aligning your head and your heart, her experience and current take on navigating COVID-19, the importance of collective healing and the gifts of forgiveness and acceptance. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Erica Matluck. Let's go. Between COVID, a pandemic, between the upswell and sort of uh, our attention and our emotion around racial equality, um, I couldn't think of a better time to be talking with someone like you, who I've gotten to know just a little bit, and whose whose spirit and compassion and um, and strength and knowledge around health I really appreciate. So I'm really honored just to be able to dig into these topics with you and learn about how you're thinking and moving through it and what you have to tell us about it. Um, I want to start for my sake, but also for other people's sake, because what I, one of the things I love about your story is this move from, and I know you've always been into, to, alternative medicine between Reiki and massage therapy and energy work and whatnot. But there is, there does seem to be a move when I read your bio between from a conventional medicine sort of background towards diving fully into what you're doing today. And I'm wondering if you could describe, well, let's start with this. How do you tell people what you do today? Mm -hmm. It's a really good question and it's not really like I've never really mastered the elevator pitch because you just summed it up so perfectly for me what I do today is like a synthesis of my entire life the things that I've learned and the things that I've experienced so it always feels so challenging to like really boil it down to like a, a little statement but really, the way I think about what I do today is Seven Senses, which is my, my company and a framework that I use in all of my work, is really a holistic approach to transformation. And that transformation can take place 
meaning like that, that might mean different things for people. So I work with people who are dealing with chronic illness. I work with people who feel like they want to find the partner of their dreams or change their career. But really the way that I see it is that any dis-ease and whether that is in the physical body, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, any dis-ease is really a deviation from our authentic path. I think that we all come into our bodies with really one universal purpose, and the purpose is to be who we are. And then we come into this culture that does a really good job of telling us everything but that, you know, be like this, be like this. We get all this messaging. And over time, we lose track of really like what is my authentic essence what at which is my purpose and that shows up as disease uh so really what i do now is i work with people to understand that source of disease and help them find their way back to the path which is back to themselves And it's interesting in the way that you described my journey. Yes, I I started in more of the like sort of energetic and massage and, and alternative realms, came into conventional medicine, and then sort of remembered who I am, right? And part of the way that I remembered that in my decade in conventional medicine was through the tension and the discomfort of not really being in an environment where I could practice my craft and share my gifts. So it was a sort of, as much as I'm so grateful for every moment that I spent practicing medicine in the conventional setting, I learned so much. But there was a lot of dis-ease for me being in an environment where where I couldn't really express who I was authentically as a facilitator of healing or, or as a partner in people's healing process. And that was part of how I found my way back. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because I felt a lot of disease and a lot of desperation, you know, sort of in that was required for me to leave my past life and, and move into a more aligned one. So I resonate with that. And I, and I want to ask a little bit more about that because I think it was a new, it's been a new skill over the last seven years of my life to learn, I guess, what wisdom feels like inside of me, you know, some language with myself. So I want to ask you as you were moving from conventional medicine or the sense of disease, how did you begin to listen to yourself and what is the quality of that? How, how can you describe that to someone else so that they may begin to hear those voices or that wisdom inside themselves? Yeah, I think there are, there are so many different ways that I can answer that. But I think what it boils down to is we know, right? And we've all had these experiences where it feels like our head and our heart are not in the same place, right? And you have this feeling, I want to quit my job or I love this person, or I want to do the right thing. And then the head comes in and it starts thinking rationally and and weighing everything out. And we start using our minds to, to figure it out. 
right? And for me, if I'm trying to figure something out, I'm up here. That's how I know, right? When you hop on Google and you're like, I got to find the answer to this right now, right? That's not a knowing. That is information. It's a different type of intelligence than I think the wisdom that you're talking about, which is more of like a deep knowing. Mm -hmm. And I think this process that uh, we're sort of all on when we go on this journey from, from figuring it out to knowing, it really requires us to keep trusting ourselves. And that's hard to do because a lot of the time, when you trust what you know, it doesn't create the desired outcome right away, right? Like we all know this when we've taken these courageous risks like leaving behind our old lives or quitting jobs or leaving partnerships. It's not without challenge and pain. And so part of the hard work is really trusting, continuing to trust it until you start to get some feedback that says like, yes, you're on the right path. And we all know as soon as we get that little nod from the universe, it gets so much easier, right? Then you keep going and you keep trusting yourself. But where the real work is, is in that moment of doubt, where it's like, I listen to my heart and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent next month, or I listened to my heart and this person cheated on me, or I listened to my heart and this treatment I'm trying doesn't seem to be working. And those are those moments where a lot of people talk about them as tests. I don't like that terminology. I don't think it's a test. I think it's an opportunity to exercise trust. And the more we exercise trust, the easier it becomes to trust and the easier it is to to take that journey from figuring it out to knowing. So I think my the statement I would offer to people who are in that like limbo of like, uh, which what do I do? It's it's a trust the process. It's keep trusting what you know and let go of what is an appropriate amount of time where you expect to see some like positive feedback because sometimes you take that leap and you get the results you think you wanted right away. Sometimes you take that leap and you don't see the results for six months or six years. And sometimes you take that leap and the results you thought you wanted were no are no longer the things that you actually wanted. And the whole idea of does this work dissolves. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And I particularly like, like the concept of time, you know, giving yourself time for these things to work out because we're in such a culture of instant gratification that you know, at least for my story, I started to listen to myself and it seemed just that everything was falling apart. You know, the relationship breaks down, you lose your job, you know, and yet it is leading towards what ultimately I want. So there is a period of time in which I had to just weather that storm, just have faith for lack of a better 
term in the process and in that wisdom inside of me. I'm wondering if you have any poignant or particularly impactful moments in that journey. I mean, did you have, when you began to make this transition, were people telling you how crazy energy work was? Were they doubting you? I mean, tell me any story or anecdote that you may have from that. You know, my, my story has been a little different. I really appreciate your story. I love this like idea of the breakdown to the breakthrough. And as you know, my partner, Paul, who I do a lot of teaching with, that's his story. And I love it. Uh, this like, he woke up his entire life fell apart, tearing everything apart, you know, and, and that was sort of his road to like really finding the alignment in himself. Um, I've had a very different story and my story is one of someone who knew it all in the beginning. Like I knew who I was in the beginning. I knew when I was a little girl that I was going to be working with people in a healing capacity. When I was 18, I heard about Reiki. I didn't know what it was. And somehow I ended up knocking on the woman's door and asking her to teach me about energy. So for me, the story is a little different where like I always knew these things and my process of getting to where I am now was a little bit more of, um, it was a, a gentler lesson. But I had a few really big wake-up moments when I was in conventional medicine. And one of the ones that really stands out to me is that I, I'm a naturopathic doctor. I, I really minimize the amount of pharmaceuticals that I put in my body. I've generally taken an approach an approach with my own health that has been like, you know, mostly natural medicine. Um, I've also been very blessed to, to not have like any major acute or chronic medical conditions that I couldn't actually work with, with sort of more holistic and non-invasive tools. But what started happening when I entered the, the clinical environment in the conventional world is people were sometimes booking appointments with me just because I was the person who was available. They didn't even know my background and wanting prescriptions for things, whether it was birth control or Xanax. And I remember in the beginning of my journey, I would sort of try, and this was back in like 2011, people with anxiety who wanted to come in and, and fill their anxiety prescriptions, I would try and talk to them about meditation or other things they can do. And they would get frustrated with me. Like I came here for this prescription. And when I was a new provider, I felt insecure and I just, you know, I'd write the prescription and I would, I would do what they came for. One day in 2012, a woman came into my office, a young woman and she had been on birth control and she wanted to go off birth control. She had gone to a few gynecologists and, and conventional doctors and told them that she wanted to go on birth control and she didn't want to take 
synthetic hormones, but she didn't have any like reason why, right? It wasn't like she was having negative side effects. It wasn't that she didn't need something for contraception anymore. She didn't want to get pregnant. And the advice she was getting from all the providers was um, stay on birth control. Keep, don't, you don't go off. That's not a good idea. If you don't want an unwanted pregnancy, then this is what you should do. She came to me and she asked me my opinion and I sort of fed the same standard of care. And then she said to me, do you take birth control? And I said, no. And she said, why? And I said, you know, I, I've chosen not to put synthetic hormones into my body because I think that my natural cycle and my, my hormonal state has a huge impact on who I am and the decisions that I make and how I interact with the world. And I've made a decision that I, I don't want to shut that down. And she said, that's why I came to you. And I had this light bulb moment of like, why am I sitting here not being myself? And the more I stepped into actually sharing with people what it is that I believe and how I take care of myself, the more like the right people, like the real therapeutic matches for me started coming into my office. And the truth is like as a practitioner, I'm not for everyone. People are in very different realities and not everyone has the same idea about what healing looks like for them or even what health is. And that's okay. I respect all of that, but there are certain people that I'm a better match for. And there are certain people that other practitioners are a better match for. And really, I, I realized I'm not doing anyone a service by trying to be someone I'm not as a practitioner because then I'm preventing them from finding the practitioner who they can have a deeply therapeutic relationship with. And I'm like, it's very draining to spend 12 hours of your day pretending to be someone that you're not. So it really like wasn't serving anyone. And so in that moment, I started bringing a little bit more of myself into the practice and realizing that like the things that I knew back in the beginning were things that people wanted to, to experience. So it was like a slow journey for me of integrating all of the things that I had learned and understanding like where were the limits of that clinical environment? Like what could I do there and what couldn't I do there? And for me, the, the, the thing that finally inspired me to leave that environment was really the desire to bring nature into my work. And to be able to, I mean, in my private practice, I'm not like going outside with people, but in retreats I am, you know, and I really wanted to get out of this environment of like, you're just in a windowless office doing healing work. Because for me, it's like, why aren't we using nature? It's such a profound tool. Yeah. So it was for me, it was like this series of steps 
that, and where eventually I hit a point where it was like, I can't really be myself and I can't really do the work that I know I am here to do in this environment. And that's when I left. And it wasn't scary. It wasn't actually scary at all. And in fact, I feel like by the time I was ready to leave, I knew that the world was like, there was a demand for what I had to offer Mm -hmm. in a way that there wasn't when I started. Yeah. Yeah. That's gorgeous. I, um, you know, I struggle so much with the fear of loss, the fear of losing all those things that I've had, whether it's the relationship or the, um, uh, appreciation is not the right word, but, um, I'm afraid of disappointing other people, you know, and, and yet your story is so powerful for me because it's just that reminder that I can't be acting like someone other than myself, just to try to maintain something that is not a service to me, that's not a service to them. And I think that's such a powerful, I mean, that's a cause, such a grand cause of disease in this world and and for a lot of us these days. Um, I loved your mention of nature too, and um, would love to dig into that more. But I want to talk about what's going on with COVID right now. And I want to get your take on that because you talked a little bit, or I inferred some sense of collective healing. And I know you do these retreats and, and we are in this time that feels like collective growth and transformation and healing. And so there's individual work and there's collective work, but just to start, I mean, how have you, someone like you with your connection, your network and your experience, how have you found clarity for navigating what's going on specifically with this disease? I mean, I think that COVID, both personally and professionally, COVID has brought up challenge and discomfort for everyone. Um, our flavors of suffering may be different, right? So some of us, have had COVID. Some of us have family members who have had COVID. Some of us are quarantined with people we don't like. Some of us are anxious. Um, Some of us have lost our jobs. And so what my experience of COVID has been that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I am fortunate in that like physically I'm I'm healthy. I've been quarantined. I have not had COVID and no one too close to me has had it. Uh but what what it's brought up for me is how connected we are, right? So there's no one right now that's not impacted by this disease. And uh, it just goes to show you how health and well-being is not just a physical phenomenon, right? Because you could be quarantined in your house and have no risk of, of getting COVID. But if you're watching the news, you, you will experience these waves of anxiety. I mean, most of us. 
One of the things that I did for myself in the, the peak of it was limit my media time. And it helped a lot. Because I would notice that if I went on went online and I looked at the news, which I believe is biased and really likes to report when things are bad and does maybe not as good of a job as celebrating some of the, the wonderful things going on. And if I would go to the news frequently, my own level of anxiety and disease was higher than if I limited myself to like, you know, once a day. I think we're seeing a lot with COVID. I mean, there's also this, it's sort of this bridge between infectious disease, which in our lifetimes in the United States, we've been very fortunate to not have to like really get up close and personal with infectious disease in the way that previous generations have. I mean, we have some, but we also have immunizations and we're, it, it really hasn't been sort of the flavor of suffering of well-being for our generation. We're more looking at lifestyle diseases and chronic diseases. And what I think is interesting about COVID is we're starting to see those two things coming together, right? Because we have this infectious disease, but we also see how like, if you have in some cases pre-existing conditions, um, your risks associated with this, with COVID may be higher or different than otherwise. And of course it's new and we're learning this as we go. And there's still a lot of unknowns. So we're all sort of having to answer this question of how do I take care of myself as best I can, given, given so many unknowns? My mental health, my physical health, um, both protect myself from acquiring an infectious disease, which means social isolation and wearing masks and limiting my contact with other people, but also not to a degree where that's impacting my mental health, right? Because social isolation comes with its own set of, of issues. And so it's really this, it's, thi it's this thing where we sort of all have to, to some degree, find our, where, where we're comfortable, where our risk evaluation is, you know, or where, where our, our threshold and our risk tolerance lies and both synthesize what we know from science and data and the media and others and sort of superimpose that on our own level of comfort to find what is true for each one of us. And for me, this is what well-being is this is what it's always been, right? It's about like taking what we what we know from an information basis and then merging that with what we know to be true in here, with what we believe, and finding where our own truth lies. It gets way more complicated when it's a public health crisis, right? Because 
I do have to find that for me, but it's not just about me, right? I might have no concern about COVID for myself, but if I don't wear a mask, my father's at risk, right? Or the elderly in my community who are in the grocery store are at risk. And so it really has been a time where the the situation is demanding that we think about health not just on an individual basis, not just how do I feel and what does well-being mean for me, but how do my choices impact everyone else? Yeah. And we can't separate those two things. Yeah, there really is this dance between there's the dance between preventing spread and creating health, you know, which sometimes seem at, at odds. And then there's also that dance between individual health and collective community health and dancing between that. Um, not easy for anyone. I think what you started with, just sort of the acceptance, the, the ability to sit with uncertainty and lack of clarity to allow the time necessary for synthesis um, and that practice of disconnecting every now and then to make sure that what you're getting is your own signal um, is really, really powerful and important, I think. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, I've seen some of the stuff that you've been writing about um, chakras in and the age of Aquarius and new paradigms of health. What does this, and maybe you just touched on it, but what is this welcoming in? What is this the stepping stone towards? What, what should we imagine as beautiful coming out of this? Well, I mean, I think there are a number of themes going on and it goes way bigger than COVID, right? I think we're in this time where we're really starting to see that the systems that we've believed in, the systems that we've trusted for our entire lives are failing us and they're not working, right? And you do, that's not just the healthcare, right? It's not just that we don't have enough hospital beds in the ICU if everyone is infected with COVID at the same time. It's our, you know, uh, it's our politicians, it's banking, it's job security. It's, you know, it's everywhere. It's, it's racial inequality, right? It's waking up to white supremacy. It's really becoming aware that like these, um, these like poisonous threads are in the fabric of our society and our systems. And we really aren't at the roots of the disease yet, right? We've been sort of trying to do our best, but we're starting to see, I, I mean, I know in my own life I am, um, seeing more and more how our systems are just, they're rigged. They're not equal. They're not fair. Um, they're not in service of our well-being on so many different levels. And so the big thing that I think is happening is that collectively, this is our breakdown before the breakthrough. Um, this is like, you really can't, I don't think we can build a society based on new values until we really see the old systems crumble. 
And unfortunately, that's hard and it's very uncomfortable, right? Because we're at the beginning of like the bridge to a new world. This is what I believe is happening. I see a future where the values underpinning society are very different than the ones that we came from. And this is where like the new age comes in. People have been talking about this, you know, age of Aquarius for a long, long time. And what that really is, is it's, it's defined by a big cosmological cycle called precession of the equinoxes. And the, the astrological age really refers to the constellation of the zodiac that's rising in the eastern sky on the spring equinox. Because of the Earth's wobble, this change happens every 2160 years, right? So this is a big, big cycle. And no one knows exactly when the cosmic clock turns, right? It's not just like the age of Aquarius starts tomorrow. It's a big transition. And I think that this year, what we're experiencing in 2020 is a big part of that transition, where we're really starting to see that the old system is not working anymore. And the values of the old system have been very power-driven, Right? So I talk about the chakras, and, and in chakra terms, this is the solar plexus. This is like power and confidence and will. And we see this in our systems, right? There's like everything is a hierarchy. And the people at the top have the most access. Things are exclusive. Healing is inaccessible. Uh, things are expensive. Even when you look at like a, a practitioner patient relationship it's sort of like the the one with the title and the degree is in a is in a position of power but this age of aquarius where we are headed is is a movement into the heart chakra it's a movement into a more compassionate place and the idea is it's a movement away from this hierarchical leadership structure and a movement toward each person really being a leader and moving from a place of, I know what I believe in and I select leaders based on that and follow them blindly. It's a movement from that mentality into, I know how to trust what's in here. I know how to find my own truth and trust that. And so it's, there's turbulence in getting there because if we're moving into a place where each one of us needs to find our own truth and live according to those principles, uh, sometimes my truth might challenge your truth, right? It might cause discomfort. We might have conflict there. And rather than one of us being right, we sort of have to find a way to use compassion to honor each other and create an environment where we can coexist, even if we don't believe in the same thing. 
So what does that look like? I mean, I, I don't know what that looks like for the economy. I don't know what that looks like really for the world, but the place that I like to geek out on it is in health and healing. It's like where I spend a lot of my time envisioning what that looks like. And one of the things that I think we are, we are going to be seeing more of is group healing containers. And, and this idea that like energetically we're not separate, right? So like if you are suffering and I am sitting with you, I am not like immune to your suffering, right? There's something that's shared and COVID is bringing that up right now because even if you're, you know, partner or your family member is not being, is not infected or struggling, like we're all impacted by the suffering. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I mean, you talked about the waves of emotion and sensation at looking at the media, even just here living in my small town, I'm, I'm feeling these waves of emotion and, and really feeling the 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 fear and the worry and the the pain of those being affected by it day in and day out. Um, I love your your idea of well, how I heard it was community. You know, this return to process, community as the container for holding two truths, two individual truths, and allowing space for negotiation toward toward a shared value system toward a shared future um so thank you for saying that and how have how does that work what are the i guess what are the elements of community maybe as you've defined it in holding group sessions you know what are these unique things that we get from sitting across from someone confronting i don't know what it is intimacy looking in each other's eyes and, and working through um, healing together. And then maybe we can just have fun and say, okay, what is, how could that look like in the future and future healing centers, you know, that are supported by the government or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we get so much out of these collective experiences. One of them being that one of the things that, relational healing does is it allows us to see ourselves in each other, right? And sometimes in a group dynamic, someone might say something and they give words to something I'm feeling or experiencing that I didn't even realize was relevant, right? And that may have been a blind spot in the sense that like, oh, I didn't even realize that was something that mattered toward my well-being. And it may be that it's not necessarily a blind spot, but I just didn't know how to describe it. And you share something and all of a sudden it opens up this world in me. This does happen in one-on-one dynamics too. For example, uh, I've worked with tons of patients who come in and they say, you know, I have this one complaint. And I say, oh, well, and how is your digestion? Mm. And they say, oh, it's not good, right? And then it's like, oh, okay, that, that actually, that's, 
that's something we should address, right? But that's when my, you know, expert eye is on one person. When we are in a community container, we get, you know, an exponential number of eyes and voices and feelings. And uh, that is really profound. You know, the other thing, the re- one of the reasons I initially started working with groups, and I did do that in, in the conventional medical space, was that when you're a provider and you sit in your desk and you see, you know, 15 or so pa- patients a day, one of the things that becomes very apparent is one of the sources of suffering on top of the pain of illness is the feeling that you are the only one suffering from this thing, right? And so when you're a provider, sometimes you have the same conversation seven times in one day, and yet each person feels so alone in their experience. And the second you get into a community container, and you hear that like 12 other people sitting in this circle have panic attacks, all of a sudden that part of your suffering that is attached to feeling like there's something wrong with you because you are the only one that can't fit into a sick society, all of a sudden that is relieved. And that's huge. And as soon as we see that like, oh, If 20 of us are all having the same experience, maybe there's nothing wrong with us, but there's something wrong with the system. And rather than taking pharmaceuticals to dumb down what we're feeling, maybe we can change the way that we work or the way that we approach things in our world. So... That, I think, is a really important part of of the group container. The other important thing that that I love to just name, because we've grown up in a healthcare system that really doesn't encourage you to think about energy at all, right? So, like, but we all know that this is real. We all know we've walked into a room or into a conversation and we've felt a vibe who doesn't know that, right? We all do. Yet, like, that's not really regarded as something that's real or a valuable source of information. And what happens in a group dynamic is a lot of the time you can feel things that aren't yours. You could tell me your story and all of a sudden I start crying, right? And it's, I'm crying because of the way your story is inspiring me to feel. And that's a really important exchange. So if we as a, as a people can actually learn to work with that information and use that information to connect us to each other and as like an avenue for healing, it opens up a whole world of of tools and wisdom that we're not currently using. Yeah, so you're saying tapping into this ability, this 
this language of empathy and being able to use that. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And it's, it's empathy and it's compassion. Mm. And I would actually define those differently. Empathy being, I've felt what you're feeling before. I too Mm. have suffered Mm. and therefore like I can really connect with you right now. I can feel your pain and I can sit with you in your pain and be with you in it. That's potent. That's empathy. Compassion is I see your suffering. I don't feel your suffering, but I have a genuine desire to help. Yeah. I have a genuine desire to relieve your suffering. And actually, compassion has been identified as something that is essential for the survival of our species. Without that instinct to want to relieve another's suffering, we actually wouldn't be here. Yeah. And working with those two things in a d- individually is actually very profound. Mm-hmm. Because when I generate compassion for your suffering, and this could show up in many different ways, and you see this right now, we're in the middle of a revolution. And some people's expression of compassion is donating money. And some people's expression of compassion is going out into the streets and protesting. Some people's definition of compassion is educating themselves. And, but all of that is in service of, I have a genuine desire to help and I want to help. Right. But that's very different, right? Because in some ways, and I'm, I'm using racial, the, the, the current sort of state of race as an example, but we could see this in a lot of different ways. I can't actually empathize with someone who's black in the United States right now. I have an ex- the experience of being a white woman. I have a separate set of like my stuff that I have to look at and my discomforts, but I can't necessarily empathize with what it's like to be a black woman in America. I can be compassionate and I can, from my own experience, have a desire to help and do my work to change, to relieve the suffering and to try and and make our world and someone else's experience better. But I can't necessarily empathize in the same way because I haven't had that experience. And so I think it's important when we're working with those two concepts to to identify them as different and work with both of them as best we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that dance. And, um, you know, in so much of what you've talked about, the, the common thread that I'm hearing is this, this return to sovereignty and and I'm defining that as learning to listen to yourself and then having an underlying value and maybe everything shifting towards a more compassionate world. And part of that being this container or this process of how do we sit down and listen to each other long enough to find harmony and a way forward, you know, whether it's, the whether it's what's going on with race, whether it's what's going on with creating policy around COVID, um, 
and and maybe this is just my projection, but it's in response to what I see on social media as being all of these people wanting to do what's right for the world. And, and what's getting in the way is either their affiliation, as you referred to before, you know, this idea that I'm on this team or I have to follow this flag and a need for clarity, which is, or certainty, which is tied up in needing to be right, either for a reason of pride or for, for safety in knowing what is. Mm-hmm. Um, does that jive with, with what you see going on? Would you like to say anything? I do. I do agree with you that um, the, the need for certainty, I do think, is a need to feel safe. And one of the challenges with feeling safe is like, we're not safe, right? So like what, what our mind has defined as safety is, is not real. It's an illusion, right? We're never actually safe. Nothing is guaranteed. Your life is not guaranteed. Your, you know, personal safety is not guaranteed. And it's a big dilemma of like, how do we operate in the world as if we feel safe? How do we trust the world mm-hmm. um, in a way that we can actually be courageous and take chances and do the things that we want to do when we face the reality that like we're not safe and none of it is guaranteed? Um, and that I don't, I don't have an answer. I mean, I have my own ways of dealing with that. And I think for me, a lot of that is moving away from in, in health, in, in Western culture, we're, we're much more comfortable talking about physical and mental health than we really are talking about the emotional and the spiritual experience. I think about physical and mental health as things that can be proven and seen. There's data around it. And emotional and spiritual health is sort of wild. This is sort of the mystery, right? In Chinese medicine, this could be yang and yin. And how do we start to become comfortable with the unknown, which leads us back to where we started the conversation, really. How do we trust that that wisdom, that knowing, that thing that we can't prove? How do we trust that as much as we trust the things that our mind believes to be certain? And that's a process. It's a really big process. And... Uh, culturally, we have not been taught to do that, right? We've not been taught to say, um, well, the data says this, but my intuition says this, so I'm going to do that, right? It's like, how do we balance these two things? And, and personally, in my work, I, I like to bridge them, Right. We have a lot of people that operate very much over here and we have many more people who operate more over here. And I try and use this material 
data, science, rational thought to do the best I can to guarantee safety, knowing that safety is not guaranteed. And this part to sort of guide um, where do we go from that foundation? Um, But as you know, the more we do this work, the harder and harder it becomes to really honor these boundaries because the more you see the limitations of your mind Mm -hmm. and the more you start to see that if I live my life in a way that just only prioritizes safety, I, I miss my life. Like I don't get to live as the person that I am because I'm constantly either walking on eggshells or, um, you know, making decisions that guarantee my financial security or a roof over my head. And sometimes that's at the expense of like the thing, my, my dreams and my hopes for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've at a number of times in my life, I've totally thrown out my value system and, and much of my beliefs about what is particularly what is right because I've gotten to these points of total breakdown and desperation, realizing that to a great extent, I've been lying to myself, you know, that I created this fictional universe in which if I just had enough money and the right car and lived in Cal Hollow, you know, that life would be good. I'd get the girl, I'd be happy. And, and to arrive there and realize I'm not happy and having to reconstruct this whole concept of certainty and then do it again and, and get to a point, you know, with a totally different identity and different value system. And just to see how the ego works, I'm going to call it the ego, but the mind, I guess, works that way to construct this system of safety. And, um, and so, yeah, to sort of hold that lightly ever more lightly these concepts or what is and and almost to see it as not part no longer part of my identity but just how do i negotiate with the agreements of society you know and society being whoever i'm communing with is that this family what are the collective agreements? What do we collectively value? What do we believe is right and wrong? Um, which, you know, as further I go into this stuff and, and living through COVID and, and looking at racial equality, you know, these, the definition of right and wrong seems so obtuse, but, but we need to come together and collectively agree, have agreement and have, an idea of where we want to take the world together. And that can be in a partnership, that can be in a family, that can be in a community, a city, a state. But at every one of those levels, how do we work? How do we dance towards using our minds and following our hearts towards crafting that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that, is what we as humans are, are like always sort of figuring out, right? And we, we try things mm-hmm. and we keep going with it, right? Like capitalism, 
maybe seem, seems like a good idea to some people, right? And we keep going with that. And then we take it so far and we see all of it, where all of the places it falls short, right? And then we see we need to try something different. And I think that culture is always sort of like a pendulum swinging back and forth. And we take things to the limits and then we see the limits of the way that we've tried to do things. And then we, we swing back the other way. And what, what I hope and what I believe is just like in the dynamics of a swinging pendulum is that it starts to swing less and less and less. And someday, I don't know when that day is, but someday humanity finds a still point. Um, who knows what happens then? Another big bang or something. But but I think we're we're always learning and we're always in process. And I don't actually think we're supposed to have the answer to that, right? How do we do this? How do we um, all agree on what? collective good looks like and use our minds to create a world that creates that. I don't know if we ever answer that or if we're always in progress working toward that and we learn and we make mistakes and we say the wrong thing and we build systems that don't work and that hurt people. And then we say, oops, you know, and we, we have to tear them down and build something new. And I think that that's a cycle that's way bigger than one lifetime. And I also think, you know, that's why I do believe that our generation here now is like carrying a responsibility of doing like some really deep healing work for the collective. I think we're doing it for many generations. And I think that generation, the next few generations are going to have the difficult job of like really building something new. And uh, it's, you know, it's going to be, they're going to come into the world with new orientations to the world that you and I probably can't understand because we came in through our parents' generation. And change is gradual. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, you know, we we are us coming out of our parents' generation, them coming out of theirs, this constant humanity and its constant evolution, you know, evolution of belief systems, evolution of how we see life. And, and that, yeah, the next generations will have a worldview that is, is beyond foreign to us. Um, I, I want to ask you about forgiveness because what it means to you and what it means in healing and how we can think about it because it seems particularly relevant right now, as you talked about this process of society and and us as humans experimenting with systems, trying on capitalism, trying on these different healthcare systems and justice systems and education systems. And it seems to me that part of the resistance towards change is our is our inability to 
find acceptance or find healing with what was and what has happened and to understand. And part of that for me on a global level or a grander level is to recognize that we are in this totally fallible process of experimenting every day, every moment of life is a moment in experimenting whether it's alone or collectively, we've, we've never been here with these thoughts and these challenges and these things here right now as we are today. And for me, forgiveness has been a powerful tool. I want to see, I want to know how you see that and how you think about that. I agree with you. I think forgiveness and acceptance, forgiveness, trust, and acceptance is like, you know, the trio for me that is, is a really, really important trio for healing. Uh, we make mistakes. We all do. And we're all wounded, right? We have our wounds. And I don't care if you had the most perfect parents in the world. They did things that contributed to your wound patterns, not because they're bad people or they didn't know what they're doing, but because that's just the nature of how it works. And our wound patterns are our healing paths. They are part of how we find who we are and how we find that truth. And so personally, I wouldn't trade that for anything. But what I do need to be able to do to embrace that is trust the path, trust that even when it's painful, even when it's uncomfortable, it's my path and it's where I belong and I need to keep going. Uh, forgive whether it's myself or others, but like release those the tension that keeps me in the past, right? So something happened. Lots of things happened to all of us, right? Maybe we did them. Maybe we feel as if they were done to us. And until forgiveness is sort of like what releases us from reliving the past. And you know, one of the things about the mind, it loves to keep us safe. It loves to keep us within those bounds of safety. And one of the things that comes with that is that it's never present. It's either in the past, reliving some terrible thing that happened and doing its best to try and prevent us from repeating that, or it's off future tripping, thinking about what is the worst case scenario to try and prevent that. But the challenge is now is really the only moment that exists. And if we want to get into spiritual talk about, you know, manifesting re reality and, and creating your future, then that has to happen from the present moment. Because in the world of spirit or energy, time doesn't even exist. Past, present, future, it's all now. So if my mind is in the past dwelling on this thing that happened that I have not yet forgiven myself or another for, that's exactly what I recreate, right? Whatever that like 
thing is that happened, not necessarily, I don't necessarily recreate the situation, but the frequency and the feeling of the past becomes the future because that's where my attention lies. But when I can forgive whatever it was, whoever it was that happened, I release myself from the past so I can actually create something new in the future. Same thing with acceptance. If I can accept what is without trying to change it, if I can accept the past, if I can accept the moment, then I diffuse all of the suffering that comes with wanting things to be different. And if I'm sitting in the frequency of wanting things to be different, and that's where my attention is, that is what I'm going to create forward right? I'm just going to keep creating situations that I want to be different. So when we can trust, forgive, and accept, we can actually get into like a clear moment. And from that moment, we can actually be the creator of the future instead of a victim of the past. Yeah, no, I agree. Those tools are are everything. Mm, and so um, so eloquently laid out there, and instructionally laid out there. I, um, you know, one thing that I thought through a lot through this process is that that idea of present moment awareness or forgiveness or acceptance would lead to a sort of inertia, and. Um, and I found that not to be true. I found in those moments of clarity and those moments of stillness and those moments of, ex- of, of acceptance that my greatest creativity has come, my greatest creations, whether it's a musical inspiration or a poem or an essay. Um, how do you, what reassurance can you put around that for people who think, well, I can't forgive and I can't accept because then nothing will get done? Um, How have you described that? Well, then I would say, can you accept that you can't accept things right now? Right? So it's almost like you can just keep going to this meta level. Can you forgive yourself for being unable to forgive whatever the thing is? And that usually is a good place to start. Like, because that is acceptance. Right. So if I can just accept that, like, this is where I'm at, I'm not ready to accept. That's acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, I want to circle back to COVID a little bit and um, talk about uh, we are in my little Idaho town. We're just in the middle of our peak, I think. And, um, you know, it was just a few weeks ago that we got our first cases here and it's tourist season and everything else in other places has opened up. So we have people coming from all over the country here. And so we're politically just in this debate about what to do. And being in Idaho, it's very much, a, you know, there's a lot of libertarian sort of movement here. It's all about sovereignty and you can't tell me what to do. And, um, and at the same time, it's hard to navigate. It's hard to get that clarity online on the media. I, I 
follow scientists who say, you know, wearing masks and prevention is the best thing to do. I have scientists I'm following that are saying, you know, actually spreading healthy immunity and human connection and touch will have a greater impact, or we should focus our efforts on creating immunity for that percent who could see disease through this. So I have no idea how to trust either one of those camps. I mean, I think conventional ideas about infectious disease, sort of the history of that would say, okay, the policy of social isolation is good and right and wear the mask. Um, But us being on this tipping point of a new paradigm of health, are there ways that, I don't know, is there a new understanding of that? Do you have scientists that you think are more reliable than others? Help me navigate this. What would you tell your friend navigating this, I guess? I mean, I think it's, it's back to this thing of like, who do you trust when you can't trust anyone? And I'm right there with you. I don't really know who the most trustworthy sources are these days, but I I do think you can find a middle ground. And so you have one camp saying, you know, wear masks, wash your hands, protect yourself. Personally, I think that like you can do that and not, you know, and still have social connection, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel like we're we're in this time where technology is such a gift, right? Like we can be in our homes protecting ourselves and still connect through the internet. We can go to the store, wear our masks, socially distance ourselves from each other, wash our hands, and minimize risk while still actually having, you know, not physical, but contact with other humans. And I do think personally, I mean, I'm in New York. So uh, as a New Yorker, it would be hard to deny that social isolation, mask wearing, and um, really keeping yourself isolated doesn't work. Hmm. I mean, that's what we did for months and the numbers went down significantly. So that's my lived experience, Mm -hmm. right? So I err toward that outlook, wear a mask, wash your hands, you know, and, and even just like using the common sense of like how we spread colds and flus every year in the winter, right? Like if your friend has a cold, like you don't share food with them and, and hug them. You kind of like, I'm still, I'm going to talk to you, but I'm going to keep my distance. And I feel like we've been doing that for seasonal flus and and coughs and colds for so long that, that why wouldn't we take those basic precautions in this case? Now, I know you could also say there was a time when people were having chicken pox parties and all of this stuff. Like, I don't think we know enough about COVID to like feel safe doing that, right? We, there's a lot of mystery around this illness. 
And we don't fully understand yet, like, who dies and who lives and who has it for two months and who has it for a week. Like, we don't really know that. So it's really hard to assess risk in, like, a, a knowledgeable way. Right. Um, so for me, I think that like, if you wash your hands, you socially distance yourself and you wear a mask that like, at least you're not doing harm. Like Mm -hmm. that cannot do harm right now. Mm -hmm. And it most likely protects you and all those you're in contact with. So to me, that's like a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'm also not here to like tell people what they believe in. This is this is where it becomes challenging though because this is a public health issue. Right? So to say to someone, "Oh, you don't believe in masks?" like that's okay. You know, it's not really okay because for me, I believe that you're causing harm to someone else or putting someone else at risk. And this is where things get really challenging. So you do sort of have to figure out what are you comfortable with, Mm. with your own personal safety and those that are around you. You know, I know in my own life, it was very easy for me to say, okay, I'm going to isolate with my partner. Done. And we're going to minimize our trips to the grocery store. And when we do it, we'll wear masks and we'll be really careful and we'll change our clothes. And we had our whole protocol. But like, I also had opinions about my father, right? And he wanted to, you know, go on an outing one day during the peak of the, you know, COVID in New York. And I said, absolutely not, you know? And then we sort of had to negotiate in a father-daughter relationship, like, I care about you, you care about me, and I respect if, you're, if you believe that you're safe and you're wanting to go to the store. It's making me anxious. So how can we negotiate that, you know, as two people in relationship? Like, maybe you could make this choice not for you, but to protect my anxiety, you know, and I think that I'm using an example of like, you know, of myself and my father, but these are like the dynamics that are going on in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. from the people you're quarantined with to your social circle, your family that lives far from you and your community. Yeah, absolutely. And and this spreads not this spreads beyond COVID, right? This this dynamic of negotiation. I mean, you know, I learned a about this dynamic in romantic relationships and now I'm learning to expand it into conversations about healthcare and public policy and race and um race and justice and systems. But that concept of, okay, we're here, two individuals, we have the same underlying value of we want something good for society and humanity. And yet, because we have different belief systems, 
we have different emotional reactions to each other's actions and how do we sit together and, and decide what to do. Yeah. And like, how do we negotiate meeting each other's needs when like our needs are in conflict? Right. But for me, like if, even if I didn't believe in wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. if wearing a mask helped relieve your anxiety, why wouldn't I do that? Right. Even if my motivations for wearing a mask aren't the same motivations as, you know, what this scientist believes to be true. If my wearing a mask is in service of your well-being, which could simply be just relieving your anxiety, like, why wouldn't I do that as someone who cares about the world? Yeah. So sometimes I think we, we have to, like, zoom out and we have to look at our actions and health more holistically, right? Yes, COVID is an infectious disease. And we talk about when we talk about mask wearing from like a scientific perspective, we're talking about like actually creating a protective barrier, right? But there are a lot of other health benefits of wearing a mask. And right now they are simply relieving people's anxiety. And that's important. That's another thing that matters. Yeah, fear is a fear and anxiety is a is a great lever on health as well, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. It can be a, a sensitive subject. I'm I'm still trying to navigate it myself and my personal beliefs, but I appreciate your perspective. Yeah, you're welcome. It's any way you look at the world right now, there's a, it's complex. Everything is complex. And uh, I think each one of us has to have a little bit of patience with ourselves in the sense that w- what we used to know and trust is not necessarily there anymore. And you don't just wake up one day knowing a new right, right? It's like, we're sort of living it. We're living the learning and we are learning as we go. And uh, it's it's hard, mm. it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it is not easy, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, so I wanna go back to the systems of law enforcement or the justice system or what we're seeing around racial inequality. Um, Does this speak to you in any specific regard with, um, I don't know, what does it say to you in terms of the particular nature of the healing that is going on at a societal level? Well, first of all, I, I think that, I don't, I, I want to approach this topic with a lot of humility because as it's come up and I'm doing my own learning, I'm a beginner. I feel like I am not an expert voice here in anything other than my own experience. And what I have been waking up to is how deeply 
this like systemic racism is in the foundation of our society and everywhere. And personally, that forces me to look at myself and the ways that I've benefited from that system, which is uncomfortable and necessary work. I think when I when I look at the world right now it, through this through a healing lens, um, one thing that is clear is that there's a lot of discomfort, right? But everyone's discomfort is different, and it's shaped by their lived experience and uh, the experience of whatever you might be feeling as a white man might be, you might be healing something different than what I might be working through as a white woman or, you know, as everyone has their own experience here. And then on top of just the color of your skin and your culture, there may be another set of circumstances about your your life or your background that that I wouldn't begin to know. But from my own experience that that, that I can speak from, uh, learning all of this new information and seeing like a big blind spot in my own life, a lot of the things it's brought up in me that I've had to look at are like the shame that comes with like being a being a part of an oppressive system and benefiting from it in ways. The guilt that comes with that, um, the the helplessness that comes with like you know seeing brothers and sisters, fellow humans having endured so much pain and suffering, and like not really knowing exactly what it is that I need to do. Uh, and so for me, everything is healing. You know, right now, I think there's, there's a lot of talk about how as white people, we really need to start educating ourselves. And I 100% agree with that. And, and, and personally, and like my form of action, that's what I've been doing. I've been learning the history because frankly, I, I didn't know it. And I really didn't see how like deep these roots go. And, and, and then we have our black sisters and brothers who are like, who are healing from this pain. And, and the one, one, one perspective that I'll offer is that it is all healing because education is healing too. And I think we're just, we're in different stages of the process, right? So I think like as a white woman, I'm becoming conscious of like deep wounds that I wasn't conscious of, right? And like, I like a lot of the black women that I've been following on Instagram, they're totally conscious of these wounds. Like they've been living them for years and years. And so they're at a different stage of this process than I am, um, a more advanced stage. And, but for me, all healing begins with becoming aware of what needs to be healed. And then your experience of that, like, my experience of that and your experience of that might be very different. But in some of the 
the groups and the circles that I've been in just talking about what has been coming up for people as, as particularly in like white circles is a lot of shame and guilt. Uh, and you know, both about not really knowing the history and of the ways in which we've benefited from it. And so I think in me, that's what, that's what's healing. That's what the healing piece is. But in terms of like actions, I think it starts with education and listening, you know, and in all healing relationships, right? And like, as a practitioner, when I sit with a patient, I don't know their lived experience until they tell it to me. And probably the most important thing for me to do is listen to them and understand from them like what they what they need from me. How can I be of service in their healing? And I think that like on a societal level, like we really need to be listening right now. We need to be listening to black voices and uh, and and understanding like deeply what it is that we can do to 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 write a new story, you know, to write a new future. Yeah. Well said. I have felt that particularly around listening that right now more than ever. Um, and I've felt that with, with COVID as well, actually, um, though, you know, in a different context, but that what people are calling for is to heal this wound of not being heard. And um, if there's anything I've found that I can do, it's not to, you know, defend my beliefs. It's not to try to get them information. It's not to, um, the most powerful, impactful thing I can do in an interaction is simply make sure that they are heard and listen and ask, ask a question to help define for me and for them what's going on. So thank you for for taking us there. Yeah. And I think you spoke to something earlier that's really important right now, which is like, we're, we don't live in a culture that is very good at being uncomfortable. And there's a big invitation right now to like get uncomfortable and, and get okay with it. Mm. And that's, you know, I'm not arguing that that's easy, but it's, it's an opportunity. And you said something earlier about, you know, not wanting to disappoint people and, you know, especially our loved ones, we hate to see them in pain. We don't like to see anyone in pain. I don't like to see anyone in pain. And yet, um, sometimes I know that pain is the teacher. And like, how can I uh, learn to cultivate my ability to sit with discomfort, whether it's my own or whether it's even the discomfort of like someone I love is suffering and there's nothing I can do about it other than be with them and listen and feel with them. But I think right now there's this call to like learn to get uncomfortable. Um, and there's also a call to like 
acknowledge that feeling the feelings is part of the healing process. And that is being uncomfortable, right? We have this tendency as soon as like pain comes up, you want to change your state. You want to get out of the pain. You want to get out of the discomfort. And uh, part of learning to be uncomfortable is also learning to sit with the feelings that just don't feel good, right? So if I'm feeling guilt, part of the way that I heal that guilt is not to figure out how to make it go away, but it's actually just to feel the feeling. Yes, so important just to sit with it, just to let it permeate your cells, just to let it flow to your heart so we can transmute it hopefully into something better, right? Yeah, and children are such great teachers of that. You know, you watch a child fall down, you have that moment, what's going to happen? Are they hurt? They're hurt. They let out a big cry, a big wail, you know, but they're not talking about it three days later, right? They like it, the emotion moves through them and they move on. And uh, they're such incredible teachers, children, to just, uh, sorry, specifically when it comes to emotion. Let me change that really quick. All good. Sorry. No problem. No problem. We got editors and everything. Okay, great. <laughs> great. Um, well, I want to just, let's wrap it up here, but I want to give you an opportunity to, if there was anything you had top of mind or on your heart that you wanted to share with a, with a bit, um, bit more of an audience through this, uh, is there anything that you think you'd like to say or touch on together? We touched on a lot. Um, I think, you know, one thing I'll say is that, how do I say it? We're, we're living difficult times right now in a lot of different ways. And from a perspective of healing, I'm optimistic about where we're going. I really am. I think that we are, we're at the breakdown, we're in the breakdown before the breakthrough. And I, in trust, there is this knowing that we're on the right path. Everything is perfect. There's nothing that we're doing wrong in the moment. Um, but it also doesn't come without pain and suffering. And so we have to keep going. We just have to keep going and we have to keep trusting it. And, uh, and that, that is our healing. That is our collective healing is like to trust this process that we're in and keep going. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. And I'd like to end these and, and give you an opportunity to invite the audience to, to an, a particular exercise or a thought experiment or um, type of meditation or something. I don't know. Is there something people can really just do um, that you would give them? 
Well, one of my favorite things to offer people right now is, is a grounding exercise because so much of what we're up against in this time is learning to trust in an unsafe world, right? So what do you trust when you can't trust any of the things that you used to trust? And this is where visualizations and like working with energy and spirit can be really, really valuable because it's beyond here, right? And so our typical way of deciding what we trust is we go through this rational process of deciding whether or not we're safe or not. And that's how we decide this is safe and this is not. But when we get into the realm of energy, we get out of the head. And so I invite people to just do an exercise where they close their eyes, they visualize the trunk of a tree extending down from the base of their spine, visualize the roots of that tree extending deep and wide into the center of the earth. And as the roots grow deeper, get a little taller, lengthening the spine and feeling yourself connected to that trunk and those roots. And then just imagine if there's any material in your body or in the area around your body that doesn't belong to you, that isn't true for you. Just imagine that material getting absorbed by the trunk of the tree and sucked down into the roots to be absorbed by the earth. Just offering everything that is not true for you back to the earth. Acknowledging that these roots are your safety, they're your grounding, and they are trustworthy. And then you can open your eyes and know that this practice is there for you all the time. Simple visualization. And um, when you visualize something like that, you are, you're creating that sense of safety in the energy field. And that is contagious too, right? That is contagious too. And like all practices like this, we can work with the energy field. We can work with the physical body. We can work with the emotional experience. We can work with the mind. But when you start doing a visualization and then directing your thoughts in that way, you do start to bring your mind into the present. 
if you want to add a layer to that, you can use your senses, like do that standing barefoot on the ground and use the sense of, um, of touch, of feeling to feel the earth under your skin. Because when we use the senses, then we're using the physical body to get into the present moment too. What a gift, Erica. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank for you. your time. It was just uh, such a treat to talk with you. A gorgeous human being and healer. And not surprisingly, a gorgeous conversation. In these transformational times, as we pass through these collective rites of passage and evolve our societies and belief systems, I invite you to connect with Erica's practice of grounding. Grounding in order to stay connected to yourself as you grow, as we change. Please support Dr. Erica Matluck and her work by following her at Experience7Senses on Instagram or on her site, experience7senses.com. Thank you dearly to Dr. Erica Matluck for her time and her presence. Thank you to Auli Chino for the music. Thank you to No Sin Records for the production. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, stay grounded and get out there and love somebody. Ciao.